0: This is Actors With Issues, I am your host Juan Ayala and welcome to our 30th episode, guys. We have got such a great episode for you all today. One of my co-stars from the NBC series Blindspot, actor and jazz and blues musician Raul Baneja. Raul has worked on a ton of American and Canadian series including DC Universe's Titans, Grey's Anatomy, Suits, Nikita and most recently Netflix's original series, Grand Army. Raul talks with us about the differences between the Canadian and American entertainment industries working in the industry as an ethnically ambiguous actor and the increasing representation for actors of color. Now, please enjoy this delightful conversation with Raul Benesia.
1: Firstly, Raul, thank you so much for, uh, for coming on the show. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. Thank you for reaching out. Happy to. Uh, so let's start with where the state of the world and the state of industries uh, is right now. Um, so firstly, how are you?
2: <laughs> I'm okay. Yeah. I imagine like uh, lots of people and more like lots of artists. I'm um, I have my good days and my bad days. Yeah. I'm currently um, in Canada. Hmm. Uh, I'm often in California where I also live, but I haven't been there because the borders closed and I was up here so i 've been with family up here, and um, the situation in Toronto was you know not as intense as many places in the states hmm. uh, but now we 're kind of getting into a second wave, like everywhere in the world it seems and um, you know there was a lot of talk here about, oh well, now, of course, the live arts are completely screwed i 'm also a musician, so theater and music are completely screwed, but the idea was like, oh yeah, well, movies are back and you know, it's all coming back. And, and now you sort of wonder like, well, really, how long is this going to, how long is this going to work before they go, ah, uh, you know what? Uh, we got to shut everything down. And I really haven't worked much on camera at all this year, like most people. And so the irony of course, is right when everything was going to shit, uh, they, I was, I was cast in a pilot and it closed down and now it's just been, rebooted and then now I'm scared that it's going to get shut down again and that'll be like the one job I basically waited since March for this one job you know it's not a huge job it's cool but it's not huge yeah And I was like oh god it's like they you know it's going to shoot in December or something it's like god who knows by December what'll be happening like they might have been all shut down again so I'm just kind of I thought that'll be so 2020 if I wait basically all year for the one job I have and then it never happens and I'll be like oh yeah so yeah that's the concern. Listen, we we were pretty lucky up here. My family's been fortunate. We've been pretty isolated. We've been, my kids aren't in school. They're learning from home, which isn't the case for everybody in, in Toronto. A lot of people have sent their kids to school. We're kind of really staying, staying close to home because the other reality is, you know, if one of my kids gets exposed, I mean, hopefully they wouldn't get too sick. But if we have an exposure uh, that we have to respond to, and that's the one job i have all year and then i can't do it because my kid went to school Hmm. no one's going to pay me for that right no one's going to give me extra money because i missed the one the few days of work i can even get this year so so that's that's kind of um it's required my family and my kids to be pretty patient but i basically said hey dad needs to work and so we're all gonna keep a pretty low profile um with friends and family and all that in school um so his mom their mom and i can do work yeah it's yeah it's it's especially tough you know it's already
1: tough for artists but then for um artists with families and and it's it's this whole other layer of of figuring things out and and like you said you know having that conversation with with kids and and sort of figuring out like you know like you said mom and dad got to go to got to go to work <laughs> and Gotta, I'm lucky, you know, my yeah. kids are
2: are, you know, 15 and almost 11, so they I can communicate it with mm-hmm. them in a way where they understand how important it is that uh their parents work and they know that because my wife's also an actor, they know we go through stretches where we don't work and how important it is that when the job is there we we do it. Yeah. And so, you know, they're they're understanding enough, but still, you know, this whole thing is a huge stress on kids as well and not being around their peer groups and not being not being with their friends. And then some kids who are in school find it super stressful because their teachers yelling at them, put back on your mask, stand over here. Don't do that. You know? So in some ways I, one reason I kept my kids out too, was that I thought if the schools were going to be shut down, they'd at least be in the rhythm of online learning and getting up every day. When schools were shut down in March, you know, they basically told my high schooler that his marks weren't going to go any lower. (laughs) So once you tell a teenager, that your marks aren't going to get any lower after I just didn't want to go through that again because yeah. it, was, it was a bit unfair to them. And, and at the same time, it was kind of, um, <laughs> it was sort of ridiculous because yeah. the only focus then is just getting 51% and all the things you were going to fail <laughs> and then not worry about anything else. Yeah. Also, they made everything like pass fail. Got it. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was kind of Got pass it. fail. And, yeah. and, and that's okay. Like I, I'm, in a way I'm glad they did it because particularly think about March, April, May, kids were in very different circumstances. I mean, kids didn't have laptops, kids didn't have tablets, kids didn't have access to the internet. My kids were very fortunate to have those things. But, you know, it would have been unfair had they been really tough on the marks when kids were in these crazy circumstances and none of us knew what the hell was going on. But obviously for the new school year, like for work and like you say, getting back to, we're getting back to work. we're Like it's arbitrary. We're saying we're ready to go back to work. Virus doesn't care that we're ready to go back back to work doesn't care that we want to go to school or i want to shoot a tv show or or i'd like to go perform in a theater or play music in a club it doesn't care mm. but we 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 kind of have a season that starts in september generally in north america where we go back to school and the kids go back to work and college and university starts again so we we've sort of tried to impose that on the situation and i think that's one reason why there's the second wave all over the place is that yeah we've just said, we're back. And it's like, okay, well, that's going to come at some cost, you know? Right. It's like, we're back. The virus never left. Uh, yeah. It didn't take a summer off, you know, like the rest of us. And it likes to, It you know, it's, it's, it's happiest when we're all around each other. So right. of course, when people have to go back to work and work indoors, when kids go back into schools indoors, when, you know, I, it's only natural that, and then maybe I don't, I'm not an epidemiologist. I don't know, but you know, we do have, Again, in the Northern hemisphere, we're getting into when the season where people have colds and flus more. Yeah. So maybe that's going to be more, it's going to be worse. You know, I, I don't know, but, um, but it's daunting. And then, you know, on top of that, you got you know, America's in the midst of an election and even being north, <laughs> north of America and then yeah. north of the border right now. I mean, it's, I don't know if it's a comfort to any Americans listening, but, you know, it's, it's all consuming the world i mean canada is completely consumed by the american election even though you know no canadian citizens can vote or donate or anything but still people are very um caught up in this this kind of very tumultuous time
1: yeah for sure you know it's it's definitely something that everyone's you know not to say all eyes are on america but in a way during this time because of all of these different things that are going on that's definitely the case um
2: curious i want to ask do either of your kids want to be actors are they interested in the arts at all uh, my youngest has been for a few on-camera auditions and for some voice. Okay. And uh, he also plays saxophone. So that's, I mean, probably the most dangerous thing a parent could say is like, yeah, I really want my kid to become a jazz saxophone player. <laughs> but that's kind of exciting because I'm, like I said, I'm a musician and my my eldest was pretty good at piano, but he, he they got way more interested in visual art and fashion ah. and stuff. So they've kind of left music behind, but my youngest is quite interested in music and, um, I think, yeah, he, he's got a good temperament for it in that he's, um, he's playful. He's kind of, he's, he's not, he's got a good sense of humor. So I think in some ways like he could do it. I think the, the, the flip side is, you know, for a kid who's both parents are actors, one plus I think for the kid is that it seems like it's a very natural thing to be an actor. You know, it's not some it's like, you know, when I'm a big baseball fan, half the Toronto Blue Jays right now, their dads are like Hall of Famers and were major leaguers for 20 years. And, you know, these guys are in their early 20s and a lot of them are really good because they grew up in clubhouses. They grew up around the sport. So that's a plus. But the downside for, I think, a kid, it can also be that because of when they entered our lives, they didn't see that, you know, 15 years of trading and struggle. And I mean, yes. they see our struggle, but, you know, they grew up in there. Oh, we got a house and oh yeah, hey, we have yeah. a car. Like, you know, and you sort of go like, you know, the mom and dad actors are like, how are we going to keep our house in our car? Let alone, you know, a kid's like, oh yeah. You know, and I, I remember one, even when I started, you know, I'm 46 now. So when I started in my, you know, 21, when I left theater school and started acting, you know, there was it, the, the landscape of North America was much more populated with what I'd call the middle-class actor. Mm. You know, people who weren't stars, who weren't, you know, online celebrities, uh, who kind of could make enough, cobble together enough to think about having a family, to think about having a home you might own one day, maybe a vehicle, depending on what city you lived in or wherever. And I feel like now not just for people, not just actors, but I think for a lot of young people, it's, it's you know, real estate so expensive and things have gone so crazy that uh, I think it's harder for young people to look at the arts now as this place where you could make that choice and that might be possible. And again, that, that it, it, we may look back over history and go, oh, that was actually a pretty small window of time. That was like a 25-year period where people could be middle-class, quote-unquote, actors. You know, but at the same time, It puts a lot of pressure on an artist if they basically have to be like a huge star or there's no way they can make a living at it. Because we know that the people who are huge stars, first of all, aren't often for their whole careers. And secondly, uh, you can count those people on one hand compared to all the actors and artists we actually know and we collaborate with and we've trained with. So I think that's kind of my worry for, for any young person or my kid getting in now is that I think you know, for you younger actors, it's, uh, it's even harder to get to break in, it's even harder to kind of um, get into the system. It's cool, because you can create your own thing more now than you could yeah. in my day. But still, it's hard, because the, the there's a lot of people who want to do it. And there's only so much work.
1: Yeah, for sure. That's something that um, so many of my past guests have talked about is like very much of creating your own work, because right, uh the platforms are so accessible like you know sure your your you know six episode web series might not get onto Netflix but you could put it on YouTube and you just build your audience that way but yeah it is it is much more saturated now of of a market in both New
2: York and LA and Atlanta and every market. You know it's just well think about the show where yeah. we met on, right? We met on NBC's Blind Spot. Now when I was uh when I was your age or younger, if I had said to someone oh, I'm on a show on NBC and it's, you know, Thursday nights at eight, everyone in America would know what the show was. Yeah. Like you'd say, oh yeah, I'm on, you know, that would have been Frasier or Cheers right. or whatever, you know <laughs> what I mean? Or Law and Order. Mm-hmm. And so, and and now it's funny because you'd be like, oh yeah, I'm on the show. I'm on two seasons on and off of the show. And you yeah. would be like, what's it called? Oh, I've never... <laughs> I think I've seen the promo. Is that the one with the girl in the tattoos? Yeah. That- and you'd be like, yes, that's the one. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I never watched that. I don't have cable anymore. I don't really watch TV anymore. Mm. Is it on Netflix or, you know, oh, it's, it's on Hulu. Yeah, okay. I'll, I'll catch up on it there. But that's, that's changed too yeah. because not only has the amount of content changed like, like, you know, like I said, my 11-year-old watches more YouTube than he'll ever watch any conventional streamer or yeah. TV channel. But it's also that there's just so much more stuff in general that you could be on a primetime show on a major network and not it and there'd still be tons of people who have no idea what it is right yeah so different from when i when i was your age or younger you know it was crazy Crazy. it's no longer like just like the big four the abc Uh cbs
1: fox nbc which
2: theoretically is good for actors right because in a way that must mean that there's more series there's more shows there's more places for us to work but still it seems extremely hard for anybody to work. So right. it's not like, yeah. oh, now it's all even and fair and we've all got opportunity. It's still super hard. Yeah. But there are more shows. Yeah.
1: There's um, definitely way more opportunity just um but you know, with that is also the the meteoric uh growth in how many people are pursuing it and yes. you know, and so it it's while we look at it as as more work, it's also there's it way more people going after it. So it's still, the, the ratio is probably exactly the same.
2: Yeah. And I would say in some ways, you know, when I, I again, I graduated from, so I went to like actor training here in Canada. I went mm-hmm. to a place called the National Theatre School of Canada, which is in Montreal. And it's, it's sort of a conservatory training program, uh, probably most aligned to juilliard style you know like it's not really and and this this wasn't even a degree program it's just a diploma you get at the end it's almost like a plumber school or electrician school but for actors and and a classical conservatory but when i graduated then i would say you know that was 1996 if you look at now in 2020 like the number of actors graduating from training programs even in canada is probably triple the number than yeah. there was in 1996 and i'm sure if you think of like every college university uh conservatory community college like there's so many different places pumping out quote-unquote trained actors and there's nowhere near enough work <laughs> right <laughs> near enough work and there never will be and they there never was but now I, I in some ways i think in terms of people who've got like a slip of paper saying hey i'm an actor those numbers and that ratio is probably higher than it's ever been i mean mm-hmm. you used to hear people say you know oh this guy went to yale that guy went to yale and you'd be like oh yeah there was like a generation of very famous actors who went to yale
1: mm-hmm.
2: and you think oh that's weird and then you realize oh yeah that was like one of the top five programs yeah anyone who was serious in america tried to go to it's like in britain rada lambda you know uh national scottish dramatic academy whatever that's called like there's a few there's a few but now it's like there's a bazillion so yeah and then there's all these people who and i'm not i'm not passing in judgment then there's all the people who are like oh i don't you know like i take class privately or i never went to school for it i never got a degree for it or i'm only really interested in being an actor on camera i don't do theater so i'm not going to go do like a yeah. four-year BFA and stage work because I'm not interested in it. And right now I don't blame them because right. <laughs> it's, not a, it's not a safe stage to perform on. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's, but if there's ever been one thing true, it probably goes back to the Greek amphitheaters. There was probably a lineup of people going like, Oh, can I be in Medea please? And you know, and it's like, can I be in the chorus this time, please? And they'd be like, yeah. no, no, you're too short. You're too, yeah. your hair's too fair. You're, you were in it last time. You know, I think there's always more people that want to do it than there's, than there's the opportunity to do it. But you know, it's a big investment of time and money for people to train for a business or an industry where either there's not much work, or I think, you know, if, if you look at some of the systemic, challenges that have been in our business for a long time or there's there's the the opportunities aren't given to people mm. you know like their skin color isn't right their race isn't right the blah 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 all that stuff that there's a lot of people been you know i always say whenever i'm in los angeles i'm always like it really does have probably the most beautiful bartending and <laughs> waiting staff in the world I, new york's probably a close second but you know, I expect the people in New York, in New York, I sort of feel like you probably have the wait staff with the best posture, you know, right. they carry themselves the best, but, but yeah. in, like in Los Angeles, sometimes it will just be like, Oh yeah. The, the, the Like 85% of the people serving me. If I asked them for the resume, they'd be like, here's my MDB, you know, like, right. That's, that's what it is. That's, that's kind of <clears throat> what it is, you know? Yeah. Uh,
1: I want to go back a little bit and, um, sort of to how you got started. Um, and you know, so, you know, I always say, um, no two actors paths are alike. Some people start super young. Some people are like child actors and others don't get interested until they're in college. Um, so
2: what was it for you? Uh, when did, when
1: did all this start for you?
2: I guess, um, I was interested in it kind of in elementary school. So, you know, um, yeah, from being quite young, but you know, I grew up in a, i grew up in the capital of canada ottawa and ottawa is a total like you know it used to be it was no before they decided to build our parliament buildings there it was basically a town that was known for like hookers and lumberjacks like (laughs) it was not really a cultural hub and so but when the government moved there in the 1860s know they started building like the parliament buildings and cultural institutions and like before i was born they built the national arts center there which Mm. is this incredible kind of like kennedy centered thing like and that was in my hometown which only has now about a million people in it but it wasn't it it had even less when i was growing up of course so for a for a, a medium sized city it was it did have quite a lot of culture in it national art galleries because it was the capital. But it wasn't a place that had a real industry. Mm. So I grew up, you know. uh, But really, the big difference for me is that when I would lived out of Canada for a few years because my dad had work outside of Canada. When I came back to Canada, like in the start of the eighth grade, I've been told that there was an arts high school there that had that was like LaGuardia. You know, it had like a you know dance, visual art, um, music, theater. And so that kind of, by the eighth grade, it kind of became my mission through the eighth grade to get accepted and start the ninth grade in that school. So that's called the Canterbury Arts uh, Program. And it had only started, gosh, I went in, I started in 87, and I think it had only started in 83. So it was just a few years old at the time. And um, that kind of set me on my path, because all of a sudden, I went from being kind of in a regular sort of junior high, whatever, you know. I grew up in kind of a working class neighborhood and you know people weren't really that into that kind of stuff you know and it was very kind of amateur and then all of a sudden you know i was in this class with kids who were bussing in from an hour away or had left home and were living at their aunt's place so they yeah. got school there and you were all of a sudden with all these really intense kids from all over the region because that was the only english language uh, art school in the whole region so mm-hmm. I then was around tons of kids who were really into all that stuff. So that's really how I ever became a musician, because you know you'd see like your buddy and their band do some incredible gig, and you would go, "Hey, I want to do that." And because you're 14, you're like, "Oh, guitar? Yeah, I play a bit of guitar." Or in my case, harmonica. Yeah, oh, I'll pick this up. And so you know, I I started acting, I started playing music, I uh, I I started working at the the Ottawa Little Theater, which was like. You know, now it's, it's been around for like 110 years. That's probably the oldest cultural institution mm. in town, actually. Um, you know, I did plays with adults, and I was like 15. And so I really kind of got hooked. And then through through that those early days of just getting going, I met some friends who were in university. I was still in high school. And um, they started this thing called A Company of Fools, which was, uh, this is so geeky, but it's, it's still, they're still around. But it was Shakespearean street theater. Okay. So we'd literally, during the summer, we would busk doing selected scenes from Shakespeare. We'd have like a it was we'd have like a big ass chest. We'd carry <laughs> it around. It would have all our props in it. We'd play like music and try to get an audience together, and then we do like forty five minute one hour scenes in rotation. Midsummer's Night Dream, uh, Henry Five, Mackers. You know, we do all these different scenes. And, you know, we all ranged in age, I guess I was the youngest. So I was, you know, I was about 15, like 15 to 21, 22 was all kind of in that age group. And, uh, we did that. I did that with them for two summers and that was really where, you know, I kind of really got hooked on Shakespeare because, you know, you're 15 years old and you're playing Henry (laughs) the fifth, it's not a full production by any means. You're just goofing around, but, but in a way, you know, you, you read the plays, you rehearse the plays, you, uh you did the scene. So, you know, one afternoon you'd be bottom from *Midsummer's of Romeo, Henry five and *Mackers*, And then mm. the next day you'd be Gildenstern, And, you know, so, so that I think was really important. And also one of the other things that working in that company, what it did for me was because we took Shakespeare to the people really directly, you know, people would be on their lunch breaks from their office job eating hot dogs and we'd be doing Shakespeare for them. It ended up sort of putting me on this path. I didn't really, I would never have known at the time, but there was about kind of um, performing Shakespeare in kind of a more unconventional way, and mm-hmm. also, also this sort of concept that I ended up being able to kind of explore further when I worked at Shakespeare's Globe in London in 2002, which this idea that, you know, the those plays and were really written for a a, a wide strata of society that Shakespeare's plays weren't. Um, Exclusively for like university-educated royalty, mm-hmm. uh, which is somehow how they're presented now. Because you know, tickets are a hundred bucks. You go see it on Broadway, King Lear with whoever or whatever. Yeah. But that idea that it was a success, accessible thing for everybody, and there's stuff that some people get and other people don't get, and that's okay. So that's really kind of how I started. And then I decided to go to theater school. I was very lucky to get into the National Theater School. And then I moved to Toronto in the, right after school because it was the only place I could really go to try to get any work. And I'd always thought about coming to the States, but my, my journeys to becoming an actor in the U.S. started much later, like many years after that.
1: And how did you find the sort of transition? Like, Did you notice a difference between how things were either done um, or just sort of like how they looked or how they were um, produced? in Canada versus the US?
2: Well, it's interesting, I didn't do, when I was in the US doing any theater, it was only really when I was touring. uh, What I ended up doing was I spent many years developing a show called Hamlet Solo, which was a solo version of Hamlet. Uh, It's actually directed by a a old friend of mine from Canada, but he's been a resident in New York forever. And he's a director, Robert Ross Parker's his name. He co-founded this company called Vampire Cowboys Theater that used to do a lot of kind of cool, pop, agit-pop, satire, political satire, theater in New York mm. a decade ago. Queen Oyan was the, is the other person who he um, partnered with. So when Robert and I did uh, Hamlet Solo, that was the first opportunities I had to kind of interact with theater in America when I wasn't just an audience member. I'm like every person. I'd go and watch a show on Broadway or whatever. But um, so I never, in the theater side of things, I never really had that opportunity to to see like how an American rep company would work. You know, I never worked in like the, in, in that scenario. I haven't done a show on Broadway. So I never got to see those differences, but uh, you know, in TV and film, I did start to see a difference because there would be, you'd work on a Canadian show in Canada. And then sometimes you'd work on an American show that would shoot in Canada. And then sometimes I'd work on an American show in America. I feel like in TV and film, it's all about the budget. It doesn't really- <laughs> like, you could be shooting it anywhere, and you're either shooting something with no money or you're shooting something with more money. And I find budget is the main determining factor. Uh, the last job I did this year was, you know, I was in the season finale of Grey's Anatomy, which was really fun because for all these years I've been watching that show, and I'm very old friends with Sandra O. Oh cause she's from my hometown of mm-hmm. Ottawa as well. And she was friends with my wife when they were growing up. So, I mean, she's long gone from Graze, but it was interesting to sort of be on set there and be like, Oh wow. Yeah. This is the place that like, you know, that job changed her career. But what was fun being there is I was like, Oh yeah, this is basically like whether it was Blindspot or Graze, like it's very similar to what it is to, to work on a show with money as yeah. opposed to when you're on a show in America or Canada or anywhere where you know, you're sitting in the minivan as the warm up van, and you're bringing your own clothes to set. Like I've been in a bunch of those too, right? So yeah. I didn't notice a huge difference. I think generally all those environments have been very respectful. Oh, the one story I have about New York, mm-hmm. it's just as an actor, is you know, I was doing Hamlet Solo at PS122, the venue in New York, right? I was like, oh, my God, I'm finally going to be in New York, finally doing my show. And PS122, this place where all this cool, like, avant-garde stuff happened. And it was a big deal to to be invited and come down and do it. And I just remember being backstage. I'm like, oh, PS122. I wonder what that's like. I didn't even know it stood for public school, right, because I'm an idiot. So (laughs) I show up, and I'm like, oh, hey, this looks like a public school that could turn into a theater. Oh, yeah, it's like 80 seats. Oh, this place is tiny. And then I go back into the dressing room. And it's like every small theater dressing room in the world, you know, like toilet doesn't flash <laughs> running across the floor. The, the carpets are all old. And I was like, Oh yeah, this is like, so much of it is the same all around yeah. the world. You know? Like we're, we're all the same. Of course we're different, but the scale that we work in a lot is the same. And I mean, I've done shows for nobody. I've done shows for a thousand people. I've, you know, I've been like, when you've been doing it almost 30 years, it's like, you've really, I've done so many weird, yeah. different things. And the pandemic's even got me doing other weird things like, you know, climbing into the closet behind me and doing an audiobook or whatever, <laughs> you know, telling my kids to be silent for four hours. Like, you know, it's, I think that's one of the fun things about being an actor is, is you'd never really know what tomorrow is going to bring. And so there's, there's, you know, you really can have a new experience like that. And that's a real treat.
1: That's so funny. Get, you know it's it really is because i've heard i've heard a few different stories from some uh other actors who've you know done like the national tours of some broadway shows and they say like you know every theater it's all every it's all the same no matter if it's a 2200 seat or a 500 seat regional theater it all just feels like you're going back home it's like you know it's just like oh it's, it's basically you're going home and oh they changed the wallpaper like that's like <laughs> this tiniest little changes yeah exactly it's all it all ends up being exactly the same and i i really love that because it it's you know, to anyone that gets started in theater, no matter what theater you work at, what theater company you're with, no matter
2: how much the tickets cost, it's all the same. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons why we do it because, mm. you know, if it was all about like, oh, well, the, this green room, you know, in, in film, people have to set a standard, like I need a trailer that's this big and I need this and I need that. Even then most people in the, in movies are ready to rough it because they want to act. Right. And in, you know, if it was all about the green room couch, you know, it wouldn't be what it is. You're right. We're so eager to get out there and do our thing that actors are pretty adaptable. You know, like I've been in some pretty horrible dressing rooms where I thought I'd walk in and go, what the F is this? Like, what am I doing here? Like, I'm a grown-up. I've been doing this for years. And like, this is where I am. And you know, by the fourth show on tour, you're like, oh, it's cozy. I got my little mat on the floor. I got my little pillow in the corner. We're pretty adaptable that way. And I think it's because some of it's not good. Some of it's because we're kind of like abused people. But on another hand, I think we, most of the time we're okay with it. Cause in those circumstances, we're like, okay, the, everybody's trying their best here. We're all under-resourced. We're all, I mean, no one likes to be treated like that if you're in a fancy place or you're in a place that has all the resources. You don't want to be sleeping on the floor in some crappy dressing room if you're in some 2200 you know, mega theater in mm. uh, Houston or something. But but you know, if you're in a small little hole in the wall theater and people have come out that night to come watch you share your talent, that's what it's all about. And I, I think that's what's sad about right now is you know, that's unifying performers all over the world, live performers, is, you know, that's an experience we're all kind of having to put on hold, not that I worked, by no means, not that I was in a, I was performing in a live theater every night of the week, Um, but for the opportunity to not be there for so many of us right now, and and so many fellow artists, I mean, that's, uh, that's going to be a real mark on this time period of how difficult this period is, and, and I don't think we really know how long it will be. I don't by any means think it'll be forever. You know, some people are like the theater is dead. I don't think yeah. that. we've been through plagues before right. the theaters during Shakespeare's time shut down 1609 to 1611. And when you came back in 1611, I think it was a lot of stuff had changed some places, mm-hmm. you know, the the children's companies that had been so famous in Shakespeare's time of young actors, those were all gone. and, and you know, so things will change, but I don't, uh, I don't think they'll be gone forever, but it is difficult. It is a difficult time to figure out like what the hell are we supposed to do? And in England, there was this whole like, well, retrain. Well, why the hell should I retrain? I spent 30 years learning. This. I'm actually pretty good at it. And of course, we're actors. We'll do whatever job we have to do to survive. Mm-hmm. We know that part. But like retrain? What, I'm going to take a six-month software course and it's going to somehow like be equivalent to the kind of job or productivity I could have for myself and society, as opposed to someone who's a really skilled and talented performer, who's put years and years of resource and sometimes yeah. years and years of public resource has been spent on me getting to be a better artist. Like, no, we should do our thing. That's what we're supposed to do.
1: Yeah. It's um, I'm, I'm a bit active in the Reddit community um, mm, okay. and on the acting subreddit, especially oh, cool. um, a lot of young kids posting like, should I still go to drama school? Should I still, should I become an actor in the middle of a pandemic? Should I still do all this? And it's one of those things like, well, you know, it's, it's, we're all literally on the same boat. And it's so funny hearing um, interviews with older actors or with the, the established folks, you know, who say like, I've been in your shoes. And it's like, okay, well, yeah, that was a long time ago, but
2: now it's like, you were an actor in 1918. (laughs) (laughs) The last pandemic you were on Broadway? <laughs> I mean, you're old, but what incredible surgery. It's a newborn on Broadway.
1: <laughs> uh, but it's a—it's uh, just so funny to, not funny, but it's um, it's just interesting that we're all literally on the same boat. None of us were working this whole time. It's yeah. not like, you know, people pretending or, or trying to be empathetic and, and relate to everyone. But in, in reality, we really all were. In, in most cases still are on the same boat. Um, you know, I've we were talking before about, you know, we're ready to work, ready to go back, and then there might be other shutdowns. There have been so many sets in New York that I've heard that like they started production and then four days in someone tests positive, so they got shut down for two weeks. It's happened like on multiple shows multiple times. Of course, of course. It's insane. It's it's so much that so many moving as if there weren't already a thousand moving parts, now it's like
2: now you Here's another do- thousand. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it's only because the pressure on to deliver the content yeah. is so great. Otherwise, you know, it it probably shouldn't happen until, or it should only happen in the periods when there's barely any of it in our communities. When we have these lulls, that's when we should be shooting. When we're when we have the cases going up, it's going to be really hard to keep COVID offset, even with amazing testing regimes and everyone trying to be yeah. careful. Like if it's everywhere. Uh, and like I said, that, that wasn't the case in Toronto, but it's definitely going to be the case here. Now we're going to, there's been a few shutdowns here and there's going to be many more to come because our cases are going through the roof and people, a lot of productions ran up here from the States because they're like, oh, it's not so bad in Canada. But the reality is if it's in the community, it's going to be unsaid.
1: There's um, a production announcement I saw for a series coming up based on the comics. Um, Why the last man. Oh yes. Yeah. 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 Um, last so,
2: man standing. Yes. Yeah. Something like that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I remember the um the pilot shot in New York last year and I it's moved so. up to Canada.
2: I thought so. You know, what's so funny is yeah. I was looking that up yesterday too. <laughs> cause, cause Timothy Hutton got replaced on it. Oh really? Okay. He had uh, there's allegations about his behavior. I don't know the details of it. Yeah. But I, I and and an actor I know, Paul Gross, who used to be the lead guy in this Canadian show that did quite well in the states called Do South. It was all it was like a kind of a one hour show, but sort of a comedy about a, a mountie. And he was this like incredible. He's this incredibly handsome actor playwright guy who who played this mountie. In this cop show or whatever, and he was literally walking around in like the red sir, the red shirt and the hat and all that stuff. So he's replaced him in that. So it's funny you should bring that show up because I was like, I was, and so I started going through the credits and I was like, wait a second, this shooting here, Toronto. Yeah. And I was scrolling, and if I'm on IMDb and if it's shot in Toronto, having been back and forth here for so many years, like I'll know somebody on it. Mm-hmm. And I scroll through the whole thing and I was like, I don't know any of these people but one. Yeah. Uh, and so that's absolutely right pilot was shot there and now it's moved up here so i don't don't know what'll happen hopefully hopefully the actors who've been established on it will come up and shoot it here i don't think they'll replace everybody because that'd be too um that'll be too weird you'd have to reshoot the whole pilot but yeah yeah it's crazy man it's crazy i don't i don't know what the heck we're gonna do but all we can do is keep going yeah
1: well, thankfully there are creators out there like uh, our friend Martin Garrow, who's creating shows that take place <laughs> in the middle of COVID. And it's great. it's great. I love, I love connecting.
2: It's a really, really cool, funny yeah. show. Yeah. Um, but and it's and so, if you think about it, connecting the brilliant thing. I mean, I've known Martin for a long time. We were in the same high school together and Brendan Gall who helped create that show with him. And it's also one of the execs on Blindspot. I, you know, I, I performed the world premiere of one of his plays many years ago called Wide Awake Hearts here at the Tarragon Theater in Toronto. So I've known Brendan like probably 15 years and I've known mm-hmm. Martin 25 or something. And what was so cool about connecting for me is that, you know, often what happens in TV is like, if you were the guys who created or the gals who created Blindspot, your whole mission in life would be to do the next Blind Spot, like sli- yeah. a slightly different version of the same show. Yeah. And that's what you're known for. And that's what the industry wants you for. And I don't think anybody could possibly imagine that the guys who made Blindspot are the guys who made Connecting. Like it's totally different in every way or in many ways. And uh, I think that's quite a testament to their talent, which I know. And also they're kind of, there's something quite, I can tell they're both Canadians. Okay. Because that's a very unconventional thing to do. That's, that's really not playing by the rules. Yeah. Um, But they're kind of like that, you know, they're just very creative people who like to make stuff. So and it's funny. Uh, I remember,
1: I think it was about a year. It was a, a, maybe nine. I think it was the beginning of, of, of twenty twenty. The time is a construct. I don't know. You <laughs> yeah, know yeah. We don't know
2: what date is or time
1: is. Right. Uh, thank God for like Google calendars where I can put all my interview <laughs> appointments because otherwise I would not have <laughs> any semblance of what's going on. Uh, but it's like when their movie uh, Lovebirds. Yes. Came out. I was so surprised that uh, it was Aaron who uh, yes. who also worked with us on blind spot wrote it with with brendan and then martin produced it but it was just like so you know it was so out i'm like wait they wrote like totally. a a totally. funny romantic comedy this like <laughs> the indian know. guy and a black woman at the center right. it. Like,
2: <laughs> i'm like what? it's like from the creators of blind i'm like wait what like
1: <laughs> it's no, just they're
2: amazing man they're really amazing yeah. people who have such a wide they're kind of they're quite fearless Mm. And they also have a real belief, I think, I think of those, those guys and I include Aaron in that he's such a great writer as well, as well as big, amazing actor. Um, You know, they're just, they're, they, they are truly more like storytellers in the medium of television and film than they are like showbiz guys. You know, most of this industry is inhabited by showbiz guys who just, you know, who got to make a lot of money, want to make a lot of money. And, Want to be on air they have they have higher goals than just being on air and i think in some ways they know coming from where they're coming from which i know quite well aaron's also a canadian the three of them and nss is a canadian as well the thing is i think when you have success down there and you're from canada you've already kind of achieved an amazing thing like i think about sandra O. Oh, you know she has one of the most amazing careers And I, and you know, when you've known Sandra as long as I have, she was a surprising star in Canada who, who left like many Canadians have Ryan Gosling, Molly Parker, lots of my, lots of people I know have done it. But she very early in her career said, I'm going to go to the place that is the toughest. I'm going to go as a Asian woman. I mean, this is someone going to Hollywood as an Asian woman when the only other Asian woman, was on tv who didn't have an accent was lucy Liu, Mm. and i mean you know like a beautiful woman who was you know there were very few people like sandra and sandra came down and was like yeah i'm not going to do accents and i was like what like but she's someone who had a kind of belief in herself and i think knew as a foreigner as someone coming to america to have an opportunity they're kind of like they they're ready to kind of do it their way, which is so strange because in in a way they shouldn't, they should be. But but the people I know have had success there who've come from other countries and the Canadians I know particularly well, many of them came and were quite fearless in what they expected Hollywood to give them. And maybe that's because in their hearts, there's a little part of them that knows they have somewhere else to go back to. But now, of course, if they came back here, none of those people would have the same kind of careers, make the same kind of money. Canada's one-tenth the market size of the US. But, you know, I just, um, and, you know, you'd asked me earlier about the difference between Canada and the U.S., but mm-hmm. all, all those people you've mentioned, you know, they are all these Canadian creators who've, who've moved to America. And I think so many of them have managed to have, um, not all of us by any means, but uh, those few people we've been talking about, they've managed to have kind of unconventional careers because they're not really defined as much by American culture and their role in it. They mm-hmm. just kind of come down and are like, hey, yeah, I'm going to do a comedy. Hey, I'm going to do a thriller. Hey, I'm going to be... I'm going to be an Asian woman who doesn't do an accent on TV, you know, like, Hmm, (laughs) you know? And, and I think uh, that those, all those people have been inspirational to me. And even, you know, kind of later in my career, deciding to try to invest more time and energy into the U S and it's really from watching those people have success and go, God, because you got to realize when you're coming from a place like Canada, there's so many like having success in the U S is complicated because You'll have to figure out your legal status, yes. which has gotten even harder to do. You, have, you haven't trained there necessarily. You don't have any connections. You don't know anybody. You really are almost like the kid coming from rural Kansas who <laughs> steps off the greyhound. Uh, just you know, one advantage Canadians have if you've worked in Canada before is that a lot of the Canadians who show up are fortunate because we have some experience. Yeah. We've been able to work more because the competition isn't darn as many people. Um, so sometimes when Canadians come down, they're very lucky because they've had the opportunity for maybe five years to build more credits and get more opportunity because they're not as, they're not in as competitive a market as New York, mm. like in New York, it's a huge, you get anything in New York, it's a triumph, a triumph. <laughs> you get any gig in New York, theater, TV, film, like I, uh, from my actor friends, there, like, it's amazing. And, and, and it's so hard, you know, I, I really admire the people who, who've stuck it out and people like you, you know, there who are working so hard to fulfill your dream there. It's, it's amazing. Thank you. <laughs> um, so I wanted to um, talk
1: about diversity on, uh, sure. as you wrote um, on on the, you know, on the little question that I sent, uh, diversity on stage and screen. And as to, or I, I consider you sort of ethnically ambiguous as we hear in the industry, <laughs> people can't really pinpoint where we're from. So they cast yeah. us as all these different things. Like I don't think any Hispanic has the last name Woods but they classed me as Agent Woods on Blindspot.
2: Uh, well, I was Richard Shirley, the Southern lawyer on Blindspot. <laughs> Blindspot's maybe a bad example. They were pretty, uh, they, they had a more imaginative point of view than some shows. But yeah. Yes. Uh,
1: yeah, I, I feel like a, a good 50% of my auditions are immigrant characters or someone with a very thick Spanish or Mexican accent or something. Of course. Um, but yeah, what sort of your, I mean, you know, the industry is only slowly but surely getting more diverse and putting more of an effort, especially in recent years, in uh, increasing diversity and representation, and not just to fill a quota, but to also make it meaningful to get sort of um, the the films and projects out there that tell our stories. And one of my favorite examples of that is Kim's Convenience. I think that show is Genius. It's one of my favorite shows. Um, and it's such a great I'm example. i
2: They're all my friends. All my, in fact... <laughs> Paul Lee, who plays Sung Young Lee, who plays Appa, huh. uh, he and I were on a TV show together, a, like a weird cult favorite Canadian TV show together, 16, 15 to tw- almost 20 years ago now called Train 48, which was an improvised half hour show huh. about a group of like a soap opera of people who take a commuter train from the city to the suburbs every day. And that was one of his first big gigs. Oh, okay. Um, so, and yeah, and I, I know Ince, the playwright who, cause that's based on a play originally, which yeah. is a beautiful story about that show. Someone actually wrote a play and it turns into a big uh, TV series, but yeah, sorry, I interrupted you. I'm just bragging cause I love those guys <laughs> and, and I know a bunch of them.
1: That show to me is one of the best examples because it's like this multi-generational, uh, uh, family and with you know with the, it, it's just so relatable to me because my parents are immigrants from El Salvador and I'm like the mm. first generation American in the family the only person of my massive family who's involved in the arts at all everyone else works like vocational or trade jobs right uh and it's just shows like that are always super sort of inspiring but what has been has have there been any like recent examples uh or recent projects that have sort of like maybe hit home a little bit because they've um
2: you felt seen or represented on the show or movie oh, gosh that's a really interesting question yeah hmm. well you know i'm in a very unique position i'm definitely ethnically ambiguous but also i'm half white so for a big era of my career i had access that a lot of my black and brown friends particularly my brown friends i'll stay in that corner because that's kind of my there was a funny thing. Some black actors in Canada have had quite a bit of success, but not on Canadian shows because black people didn't seem to exist on Canadian shows until very recently, but on American projects that would shoot here where they need black, they need black actors and they yeah. would want to fly people up. So I did ha- I do have some black actor friends who I'm like, wow, they were the head of police in about 40 different shows. <laughs> and they were police chief Johnson, police, yeah. chief, you know, um, but still, I mean, under, underrepresented. So, but for me, being kind of ethnically ambiguous was useful early in my career in that I was just sort of different, so sometimes, if there was a courageous show or a casting director up here anyways, they 'd go, "Oh, yeah, you know uh he's good and he's different he little you know it was very rarely me 'd have the opportunity to read for a lead, and that 's still the case um." you know, despite all the experience and reviews and all the blah, 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 Hmm. still kind of like leads are elusive for most actors, but as a, as a, a, in my category, very elusive. So it's so tricky. So in a way um, as difficult as I found it and as frustrated as I've been throughout my entire career, that race and, my ethnicity, quote unquote, has been pretty much central to every casting decision, every audition. Like, you know, when you're a quote unquote, ethnic actor, you have to think about your race every day. And it's funny because I was half white. I think I didn't think that much about my race in my day to day life. And I know that's a privilege. You know, Mm -hmm. I didn't have cops slamming me up against doors. I didn't have people yelling slurs in my face growing up you know about my race (laughs) anyways maybe because I have a big nose but you know I didn't have I didn't have that and so that was a very privileged position for me to be in but the crazy thing as soon as I became an actor from when I was like 15 it all became about my quote-unquote ethnic look Mm -hmm. so I've lived with it for a long time and I've seen it change a show like you just mentioned Kim's Convenience great You know, and like I said, I know the series creator, I know a bunch of the actors on it. And it's amazing that that's, that's the kind of show where you're like, oh, and and what's exciting is that it shows the next generation's point of view, you know, like, like, my friends are playing the parents, (laughs) Mm. the actors your age are playing the next generation. You know, I just did a show that's on Netflix right now called Grand Army. Mm -hmm. Grand Army. Congrats on that, by the way, I've heard you. Yeah, I
1: haven't had the chance to sit down and watch it, but I remember seeing all the casting notices for it last year
2: it's cool a very diverse show which i yeah. quite like about it and you know but in that like i'm i'm the immigrant dad it's hilarious because you know 20 years ago i played the canadian or the you know indo-american son who had the dad who didn't understand and now i'm like the i'm like the indian dad who doesn't understand the young kid yeah. you know like that's always going to be a d- dynamic that's there and and you know and i don't do a ton of parts with accents anymore uh uh, Indian accents anyway. Obviously, I do Southern if I'm doing Blindspot. But um, so it's interesting because I think there's a lot more things happening. I, there's a lot more actors of color who are in the game. Uh, and the people who are left in my category, I mean, ironically, like I still go up, I'll still go, hey, I wonder who got that part. And I'll look it up on IMDb and go, Cal Penn, right? You know, like <laughs> Cal Pen. Cal- Cal Penn got that part I wanted 20 years ago for NBC. And you know, I'll still look. Oh, wow, he got that one. Yeah, I send in tape for that. Oh well. Uh, <laughs> I, I desperately want Joe Biden to get elected. So he'll go back to the White House. Cal Penn, go back to the White House, man. <laughs> go back there. So and, and you know, considering in America, Indo-Americans make up 1% of the population. I mean, Indo-Americans do have some representation on TV. Indo-Canadians make up a higher percentage of the population. Mm -hmm. So here it's not as unusual to see a South Asian person. It shouldn't be as unusual to see a South Asian person on TV, but still Canadian television has been, with the exceptions of your Kim conveniences and some very new shows like Utopia Falls on Hulu and a few others, Canadian shows have been very white. And so I spent a huge amount of my career hiding my color and not talking about being Indian. Obviously I could have changed my last name, but I just never felt comfortable with that. You know, my dad's, my, my family are refugees who came from a place called Sindh, which is now in Pakistan, but was, but they were Hindus who fled. And, you know, my, my dad came to Canada with, with this last name and, you know, he came to go to school here and really made a life for us and, and himself as a 23 year old, long before I was born, you know, he came and started his life here. And I just thought, I didn't want to exist in a country, particularly Canada, that is this, you know, really advertises itself as being this great place for immigrants and built on immigration, very open society. I thought, wait a second. I went to the National Theater School of Canada. Okay, I've got this weird Indian last name and I've got this face to deal with, but I shouldn't have to hide that. Like this, you know, this was 1996. I went into an agent's office and she said, if you change your name, you're going to get more work. If you don't, you're going to get stuck playing Indians and Arabs and stuff. And I was like, you but in a way she was (laughs) right and and really until Oscars so white i almost always Mm had to i had an almost daily conversation with myself like man if i just given myself a more neutral last name because i'm half white would i have been given access that i never had now a lot of that some of my actor friends who did do that they're now changing their names back because they want to be ethnic now so man it's so it's so crazy i have hope that it's getting better one of the ironies now, of course, is <laughs> I had a lot of access to projects because I was half white and now it's great because there's a lot more South Asians who are making shows and yeah. most of those guys, I'm too white, right? Uh, so yeah. now I don't get cast <laughs> in their shows because they're like, oh man, he's kind of a white guy. And I just bang my head against the wall and go, okay, for almost all my career, for 90% of the projects I've gone out for, I'm the wrong color, I'm the wrong yeah. shade. And, the- and then I'm so excited that South Asians are getting to tell their stories. And But I'll go in and I'll say, I'll, I'll, you know, when we were allowed to go in, I look across the table and I'll be like, oh my God, I'm meeting this director. She's from India. She's got an accent. I'm cooked. So she's never going to hire me. <laughs> and I almost never do get hired by South Asian people. So it's like, <clears throat> that's not a real complaint because obviously I've benefited from the other side of it, right. but it's sort of a funny irony I find myself now. In. And, and And for people, the only downside to that we have to think is that if the casting becomes so specific that like, Oh, only people of this ethnic origin are allowed, allowed even audition or read for that part. It's weird for us in between people because I'm half Irish. Like my mom is from Dublin and my dad is from Delhi. So if like, if those are the only parts I'm allowed to audition for, it is going to get weird. Mm -hmm. And, And in a way it's unfair because they, they will never define white parts with that specificity. Right. They will never say, oh, well, you're not actually from Scotland, so you can't be in it. They'll yeah. never say
1: that. You're English, so you can't play American. Yeah, that's, you, they're never going to do that. Then...
2: They're going to do that. But they're going to say, oh, well, you know, he's not Greek, so we're mm. only seeing Greeks. And that's the part of it that I, I, I'm a bit torn about. Because for an actor like me, that is the downside is that you know if I'm waiting for the Irish Indian parts well I might as well just give up now because there's never going to be one unless I write it and it, it, yeah it'd be great to write it and I'm all for that but that, that's not how I'll make a living so I don't want to bitch and moan too much about it because I mean man I got you'll go on IMDb folks you'll see like I've been in lots of stuff I've been super lucky but in the diversity conversation yeah it's exciting because we're we're in this new era but we've got a long way to go and it's a very it's a it's not going to be a sim. it's never going to be a simple conversation, but the more color I see on screen, the happier I am. Yeah. It's so funny, just to, to, to quickly um, say a
1: few things. So at one point, and this was before I was even considered, I, so to me, TV and film felt so out there. Cause I'm, you know, child of immigrants from, uh, from El Salvador who grew up in Connecticut, who just wanted to be a Broadway star. And I always <laughs> thought that, because, you know, awesome musician. I, I love singing and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, um, at one point, I wanted to also change my name. You know, Juan is a dead giveaway that I'm Latino. Yeah. And yeah. I wanted to change it to something more neutral. And I'm like, Ayala, people can't really tell what that is. It's not like Garcia or Gutierrez yeah. or something. Yeah. It's not like a dead giveaway. So I wanted to change my name at one point. And I remember my cousin telling me, like, are you ashamed of, like... I'm like, no, it's just how the business works. Yeah. You know, and it just sucks As like, 10 years ago, that's exactly what I... I'm glad when I joined SAG, I no longer thought that way, and that when I started pursuing TV and film, that I didn't think that way anymore. That by that point in time, uh, diversity was very much a big conversation and was something that was being embraced
2: and welcomed, and and sort of. But it, it listen, it's not your fault to think that way because yeah. that was the way to think, and mm. and there was there's no shame in people. I mean, we have a shame when we think about doing that stuff, but look at how many actors for generations of Hollywood. I mean, how many how many people who were in the actor's studio took the skis and the and the skis off the end of their names because yeah. they didn't want to be identified as being eastern european or being jewish i mean people yeah. have done it forever in america and right. forever in showbiz but you know we're in a different time and i i you know i i any restriction you might face by using your own name and using the, the what i try to think of it is you know maybe i'm also the person who helps that kid who's in Connecticut now or maybe you know you're going to help that kid who's in Connecticut now go like hey that guy's got the same first or last name as me and he's on TV and maybe that kid goes yeah that's where i belong mm-hmm. like part of us having to hide who we were is that we were we had to say this isn't this isn't a space for us please let me in i will change to be you yeah. now by you being there as yourself and i think me being there with my own name it's not a you know You know, we're not tearing down Confederate statues in the middle of the day. That's not what we're doing. But we are making a statement that we belong here and you belong here and that you have as much a right to be in that space as someone with blue eyes, who's Charlie Smith. No offense, Charlie, whoever you are. (laughs) But, you know, Charlie Smith is blue eyed. He's still probably going to get cast as the lead more than you and I, he's still going to get more opportunities, no matter what he says, no matter what his agent says, no matter when you run into him in the audition room, he goes, Oh yeah. Great time to be one of you guys. No. Right. Like, yeah. Like, <laughs> like we've all, we, um, I know that story it. I've seen, yeah. it. but the reality is you're making a statement that you belong there. And I think it's boy, if, if the last few months haven't shown us between the pandemic, black lives matter, if, if there's not a more important time for those of us who are diverse in our business to say like, I belong. This is, the, like, this is so clearly the time when we need to be saying, I don't care what you think about how I look. I don't care what you think about my last name. I don't care what you think about my skin color. I belong in this place as much as anybody else. Talent will always be a factor, who you know will always be a factor, yeah. but I shouldn't be excluded because my, I didn't change my name or because of all those other factors.
1: I love that. Unfortunately, we're getting to the end of our time. Um, thank you for saying that. Seriously, that, that really means a lot. And I, I and I know that a lot of people are going to, you know, walk and walk away from the podcast uh, with, with that in their heads because it's, it's really something that I think a lot of young actors need to hear from someone who's been, you know, in the trenches for, 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 and we all have so our long.
2: privilege. Like we like I said, my privilege was I left theater school with no debt. It wasn't very expensive. It wasn't like going to Yale. I didn't have, I didn't have a $300,000 actor debt. I had yeah. like, I would have had about a $7,000 debt. Okay. Yeah. But I was lucky. My parents had enough to help me get through it. They're both immigrants, but they did well and they were able to get me through it. I left theater school with no debt and that was, and I was half white. Those were two real privileged things that helped me get where I got. But I also spent 25 years going through an industry where when I try to have this conversation with a white person or a friend who was an artistic director or someone who was an executive producer or a writer, it wasn't that people got angry and screamed at me and took their allegiance to the KKK. I got blank looks from people or I got people saying, oh, well, I never looked at you that way. Right. That wasn't the point. The point, that wasn't the point. And that's, what, that's what's so important about right now is that the young people who are getting into it, one advantage you have is that there is a more sophisticated cultural conversation around this. And you'll be able to look at people. They might not be able to help you. They might not even do anything about it, but at least they know what you're talking about. Like I faced so many blank looks for so many years (laughs) that I just stopped even bringing it up because most people didn't get it. And it really took Oscar so white hashtag to get uh, the mainstream of our industry going, Mm. Mm. so for the young people coming up now you do have that on your side you have a lot of other things against you but you do have that on your side and and that's great yeah gosh so uh i always like to end the
1: show with a rapid fire round of uh some quick questions so we're gonna put 90 seconds on the clock we'll see how many you can get through starting Dude, you heard how long this is are. good luck man <laughs> we'll get through two okay i'll try to be fast, try to be fast. starting with coffee or tea T, Theater or screen acting? Tie. Drama or comedy? Tie. TV or film? Tie. No, film. (laughs) Film. Film. Hero or villain? Villain. Uh, What's your most recent binge watch? Uh, Grand
2: Army because I'm on it. I'm terrible. (laughs) I'm terrible. I'm terrible. (laughs) If you weren't an actor, what would you be doing for a living? Um... Again, it would be a terrible profession to be in. No, I would, I'd love to, uh, I'm also a musician. I would love to be a full-time musician. If I couldn't be that, I might be a Alexander Technique teacher or massage therapist. Ooh. Uh, what is the worst side job that you've had? Busboy. boy.
1: Uh, what is your favorite accent to do and can we hear it?
2: I don't know. I grew up around a lot of English people, so I do that a lot, I suppose. <laughs> I do, I, with, with this face, I got to do a lot of accents, trust me. <laughs> What role did you have the most fun playing? Uh it's definitely this uh, the one man version of Hamlet I do. Go to HamletSolo.com for more information. <laughs> uh what is the most helpful book that you've read? Oh, um, oh, terrible. I I I, I did like in school I read uh, Uta, a couple of the UdaHagen Hagen books. I mm-hmm. like those. And I had someone who taught me that style, so that helped. If you had the chance to direct any actor in a stage project, who would you choose? Oh gosh. It would be crazy, but I'd love to get locked in a room with Daniel Day Lewis for about six weeks and just figure <laughs> out what we'd come up with in the end. I'm sure he'd never do it, but
1: I think he would. And uh last one, in ten words or less, what advice
2: would you give to a young actor? Don't give up unless you feel like you want to. That was eleven. Okay, you're good. Don't That's give fine. up unless you feel like you want to.
1: <laughs> we'll do wanna instead of want to. There we go. <laughs> there ten we go, words. There
2: we go. <laughs>
0: And that is it for this week's episode of Actors With Issues with special guest Raul Baneja, who you can follow on Instagram at Raul Baneja. That's R-A-O-U-L-B-H-A-N-E-J-A. And follow us at Actors With Issues. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating and review wherever you're listening and catch new episodes every Friday on all podcasting platforms. This is Juan Ayala, signing off.